Do you long for a new start? Do you long for a new start? Many of us do. I do. There's so much that happens in our history, there's so much that happens in our lives, that we would just love that fresh start again. We'd love to be able to say, it's a new beginning, starting now. This is what Genesis 9 is all about. Do you long for a new start? We've seen up until now in the book of Genesis, the book of beginnings, the first line of Genesis in the beginning is actually the original title of the book. And in this book, we see where it all began, but of course, we also saw up until Genesis 9 where it all unraveled. And now we see in Genesis 9 the opportunity of a new beginning, a newish, newish creation. So I want you to open your Bibles and have a look with me. I'm going to read this episode scene by scene and we'll see this newish creation unfolding before our eyes with all the opportunities and yet all the challenges. Genesis 9 verse 1. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all flesh in the sea, into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. Wow. Do you see here in the beginning of Genesis 9, as Noah and his family walk out of that ark onto dry land, there is a newish creation. It's a newish beginning. The emphasis, as you'll see, is on the ish. It's newish enough. And here's how it's new. It's rebooted like it was new at the beginning. The creation is restarted, rebooted, we see. We see the command, which is like we saw at the beginning, be fruitful. Multiply, fill the earth. But also with the reboot is something also very new. Did you notice there in the first three verses? It's not just a restarting of the creation that was. There are new things to enjoy in this creation. Do you see this? We see there animals will now relate to humans differently. Animals will fear humans, but more than that, they will be tasty. You see this? Throughout Genesis so far, we've seen a slideshow of what God does. And we've seen again and again God's character revealed in the book of Genesis. We think today God is a stingy God. God doesn't want to give me what I want. God doesn't want to give me what I need. And that is the opposite of the view that we see in Genesis. It's not what God is like at all. Because in Genesis, in chapters 1 and 2, what did God give for his people? He gave everything. You can enjoy all the fruit of all the trees, but this one, this one's not good for you to eat. And what do we see here now? Not only does God give all the fruit and all the plants to eat, he says, look at all the animals. You can eat them too. Look how much God gives. Now, when we read this verse, we read these verses about the animals being eaten. Some of us might feel queasy about that. Some of us are vegetarians for issues of conscience or perhaps ethical reasons. One of my dear friends is a vegetarian, was a vegan for a while, but vegetarian for ethical reasons, and I studied at theological college with him. He's actually preached at Reforming many years ago, so if you go in the archives, you can probably find him. Seamus is my friend. Seamus and I were studying at Bible college, and Seamus and I could not have come from very different backgrounds if we tried. Seamus was a goth, skateboarding, uh, punk, uh, Latin-speaking linguist, interested in all those things, but particularly vegetarian. I was a farm boy, so I didn't have the list of things, I just, just, I grew up on a farm, that's my thing. Now Seamus wanted to come and visit my farm, 
my parents' farm. And so he came with some other college friends, came and and, um, I could just know, I just knew that, look, he's shameless with his convictions. Perhaps the eating of meat will be on the menu for topics of discussion. And Seamus wanted to meet my dad, and my dad at the time, the day they arrived, my dad was up at the cattle yards working cattle at the time, and so, well, let's go meet dad. And so we did, and dad, as we approached, uh, he had a steer in the crush, it's a, it's a machine that holds the beast so you can do things, and he was doing some marking, and just as we arrived with my college friends and their Seamus, the steer hoisted its head in, in kind of, uh, I guess, uh, frustration that was being held there, hoisted its head. And, and whacked my dad in the face. And my dad, you know, and so I'm thinking, oh, here we go. You know, it's easy to react and respond to an animal that does that, right? But my dad, right, God bless him, my dad looks up with his nose covered in blood and his eyes weeping and through smiling eyes says, oh, g'day, Seamus. <laughs> the point is, And for that day, we don't treat animals badly. You might be vegetarian for ethical reasons, but for ethical reasons, even if we do eat meat, woven into this text is as a way to treat animals, even as we eat them. You see, we see next is, it's not just a new start in relation to creation, it's a new start in the way we relate to creation and with so with justice. Yes, we can eat everything, but look at verse 4. We can eat everything, but look at verse 4. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, with its blood. Why? Now, in this newish creation, we have a command here. It's, it's like the command in the garden. You can eat everything in the garden, but not that tree. The command is very similar here, isn't it? You can eat all the animals, but you are not to eat that animal with its blood still flowing. It shall not be half dead as you eat it. It shall not be, in a sense, throwing around in agony. You shall not eat it with its lifeblood still flowing. Why? The reasons in verses 5 and 6. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. You see, what we see in the Bible is, throughout the Bible, blood is symbolic of life. Blood equals life, life equals blood. And here we see God is defining something about life that matters. The shedding of blood requires a reckoning, an accounting. So our translators here will have, we we keep reading, verse 5, And for your lifeblood I will require a reckoning. From every beast I will require it, and from man, and from his fellow men I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image." Life is blood, blood is life. And here we see that if you take a life, a human life, life will be required of you. Life is for life. Why is this here? You can eat everything, not with a lifeblood. And by the way, don't take life, particularly human life matters, image-bearing life matters. Why is this here? Because it's a newish creation, but it is still a world that could be potentially erupting in violence in any moment. You see how different, though, justice is defined by God's terms rather than man's terms? Can we think of anyone in Genesis so far who said, this is how justice is going to work in my town. This is how justice is going to work in my family. That if you, if you afflict me seven times, how is justice by human definition going to be meted out? You're going to get it 77 times. Who said that? Lamech. You see, what do humans want to do if justice is purely put in our hands? Is go OTT. We go over the top. But God says this is how justice should be. Human life has value. and God brings a new form of justice here on those who take life 
But notice the justice even cares for those who do wrong. And here's something slightly strange for us to think about how it works out in practice. Animals are included in this justice. Do you notice that? If a beast takes a human life, well, their life should meet justice. Now, what does that mean for us today? How do we take justice out of an animal? You can't take an animal to court, right? The dolphin can't speak for itself, although there used to be a show in the 80s where it did. You know, the kangaroo, the dog, Skippy, Lassie. You can't take an animal to court. What does it mean that an animal is to receive justice if it takes a human life? Well, I think it means a couple of things we see in our society. When a shark takes a swimmer at the beach, what do we do? We go on a shark cull. We look for the shark. That shark seems dangerous. Shouldn't do it again. When a dog takes a human life, what do we do? We say that dog must now be put down. Why do we do that? Because God defines human life as precious. Special to him. In relation to justice, in relation to one another, this is how we're to look at one another. To murder an image bearer is to make an attack not just on the image bearer, but on God's creation. We are to love our neighbour, not take their life. God sees human life as precious. This is the significance of the blood. Now we know that throughout Genesis there is violence and it increases. The world is more corrupt and it gets worse. But before it gets worse again, God is giving a command, a preemptive command if you will, a pronouncement against murder. We think the law is a begrudging thing, but the law is is our friend, it's for our protection, it's for our care. The law is all about love. To love someone is to clearly not murder them. And here we see God is defining what love looks like now by his law in Genesis 9. But there's also going to be an ongoing problem because just the law won't change us. It's, it's, it guards us, it restrains evil and guards us against evil, yes, but it does not actually solve the problem of evil. We've already seen in Genesis 6 that it's humanity that corrupted the world and what was God's response? That he was going to destroy the world by flood and the word destroy and the word corrupt are the same word. In other words, in Genesis 6, humans have destroyed the world, I'm just going to destroy what they've already destroyed. So, There's potential this could happen again. And so here comes this command of love. And potentially because it could happen again, and potentially because the world could spiral out of control, potentially because we could destroy the world, potentially because God would need to destroy the world we destroyed. What does God do? He now brings in, and you'll see it's the third point in your outline, a covenant. And it's a covenant of preservation. Here we see the creation command again. So look with me at verse 8. Then God said to Noah and his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock and every beast of the earth with you. As many as came out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth and God said this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations I've set my bow in the cloud and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth when I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it. And remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, This is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. 
God has said, be fruitful and multiply. The earth has been emptied of humans. But now, now they are to be fruitful and multiply. And now God gives a covenant for this multiplying group of image bearers. But did you notice something weird about this covenant? It's not just for Noah and his family. It's for all the creatures. We heard in the kids' talk, what did God make? He made the universe, but he made all the animals, all the creeping things, all the walking things, all the creatures. And all that had breath died in that flood, but those who were on the ark, Noah and his family, and those creatures. And here is his covenant for creatures. Notice it's not just for Noah. It is for Noah. Look, verse 8, it's for Noah. It's for Noah and his family, verse 9. But then verse 10, it's for all the animals too. We see it's repeated again and again and again. Verse 9, 12, 13, 16, 17. I wonder if they teach this at outdoor education class at La Trobe. I wonder if they teach this, that, that actually we care for creation, not just because it matters to one another, it matters to God. God promised that he will not use a flood to destroy the earth again. And he promises that in a covenant. What is a covenant? A covenant is a commitment. Now, we don't use the word a lot today in our language, like you don't hear it a lot. You might hear it if you're talking about perhaps a a, a building covenant or a, a, a land use covenant. But the most common covenant that you will see, that you will know of, is a marriage. Because a covenant is a commitment to one another, a binding commitment that has implications for each other if it's broken. So the covenant language throughout the Bible is, if it's broken, there is justice, there is a deserving implication for that. In marriage, we hear that every wedding you go to, well, you should hear it, you're supposed to hear it, and it goes like this. A whole bunch of things, and then it finishes with, till death do us part. It's a binding commitment. That's a covenant. And here is God's covenant with creation. God's covenant with creation is a binding commitment that he will not judge the world by flood again. And God shows his care for his image bearers, but also his creatures he's made. Now, some of us can find that a bit strange, but it's not strange to the Bible and it's not strange to the New Testament either. Think on this, Romans 8. You can come with me if you want, Romans 8. Look at Romans 8, verse 19. In Romans 8, we see that God's creation is so co-linked to our salvation that creation has uh, ramifications from our sin, but creation also has a rescue from our salvation. Romans 8, verse 19. For creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in the hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and attain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now, and not only creation, but we ourselves, with the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Do you see? In Romans 8, the creation around us is groaning. It's not perfect. It's not right. There's something wrong. It's because of sins in the world. The sin of Adam had a ripple effect that went through the whole universe. So it's not like if you get to Pluto with some sort of shuttle, that you got there, that you'd be, well, Pluto, Pluto is actually more perfect. Like, like there's no, if, if we ended up somehow, if we ended up, as, as a hum, human race, as, as humanity ended up with a colony on Pluto, for example. It's not like that we got further away from the Earth, there'd be less sin. Because when we go to Pluto, what do we take with us in that shuttle? Sin. When Noah and his family walked out the ark, what did they take with them into the ark that came out the ark? Sin. Because where does sin come from? Does it come from the the stuff on the outside, perhaps a a skin treatment that can be washed off later? 
No, it comes from in here in our hearts. And we can't cleanse it. And not even a flood would take it away. There's still sin in the earth because there are humans who are sinners on the earth. And God's plan of salvation then is not primarily about animals, but animals are somehow wrapped up in what we long for and wait for, the glory of the return of Christ and the new creation to come. Environmentalists say, why do we care for the earth? What's their answer? Environmentalists often say we care for the earth for the next generation. But that's actually not the answer the Bible gives. The answer is we care for the earth because it belongs to God. It doesn't just belong to the next generation, it belongs to God. He cares for how we treat his creation. And environmentalists also miss this. You actually can't save the environment in the end. It's good to be good stewards and not fight back the beast that breaks your nose. It's good to care for the cattle as well as the creeping things and the things in the ocean and the things in the trees. It's good to do those things. But in the end, we can't save the environment because in the end, the issue of salvation is we need saving. The environment is broken by sin and it's our sin that needs dealing with that will actually restore things to a new creation. Now God is not particularly working at saving the environment. He's working at a thing that needs saving, save the humans. And what he does as he saves the humans is temporarily he gives us a covenant of preservation but we need something more than that. We need a covenant of salvation. Notice here in the covenant, a covenant has a consistent theme all the way through the Bible. So covenants we see are given to Adam and Noah, um, Abraham, Moses, Jacob who becomes Israel by name, uh, David, King David. Covenants are given to all those people. And do you notice a few things about covenants every single time they're given? One, they're given with one representative. So the covenant is given, the promise is given to one representative, which secondly means it's for the whole. God is into families. God is into covenant representation and to saving people, even in families. And thirdly, God does not break his covenants. We do. God does not break his covenants. We are the ones that break covenant. And here we see the covenant he gives is a covenant of preservation, not of salvation from sin, not yet, but a covenant of preservation. He gives it to Noah and to all the creatures. He gives it to them that he will not judge the earth with a flood again. And what is the sign of that covenant? Because lots of covenants have signs. There are lots of signs that point us to the reality in the Bible. Think of them. You can think of these signs, right? Um, we know this. The Lord's Supper has signs. The wine and the bread. Baptism has a sign. Water. Passover had a sign. There are lots of What's the sign here? You know what it is. You see it a lot these days. It's used in all sorts of reasons and ways. But its purpose in Genesis 9... Is not to see on a shop front what our view is on a particular approach to society or worldview. That's not the purpose of this sign. It's much, much bigger than that. The purpose of this sign is for humans to look up and see God's covenant of preservation. It's a rainbow. Actually, it's a bow. What's the difference? I want you to notice there in the ESV, if you've got an ESV, what does it say? We have a look. So go to Genesis 9. We see in verse 12, And God said, This is the sign of the covenant that make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. Verse 13, I have set my bow in the cloud. Some translations have rainbow. That's not correct. It's not the word that's used. It's the word bow. 
He has set his bow in the cloud. Now, I know we all love rainbows. Like, I don't know anyone that says, yeah, I don't like rainbows. Rainbows suck or rainbows are ugly. No one says that. We all generally like rainbows. And yes, it is a rainbow, but the word bow is used. And what's the significance of that? Now, a lot of scholars make a lot of hay or a lot of sunshine, something. A lot of scholars make a lot of it out of this word bow and, and what it can be used for. And I want to give you those options before I tell you what I think the text is actually saying. So some scholars make much of the use of the word bow and you see it in kids' books, kids' Bible books, um, and they'll say that this is God's warrior bow because the word bow is used and the bow is, you know, the bow and arrow. This is God's warrior, warrior bow that he's laid down to say that he won't bring a flood again. That's what some scholars would, um, would contend. Um, other scholars would then take that even further and say, not only is it God's warrior bow laid down, but the bow is pointing up, so the arrow is pointing at God that he's going to take justice um, and uh, there's no more flooding and, and, and so forth. But I'm hesitant, with some other scholars, hesitant to draw such a long bow. It's my only joke today. I'm hesitant to draw such a long bow because the text doesn't tell us that. Like, yes, biblical theology shows us what is type and anti-type, what is, what is a pointer towards something that's revealed and fulfilled in Jesus, but that even here, it's, it's, it's really, it could be allegorical at best. It, it's really hard pushing that on this one. How do we know? How do we know that me and a minority of scholars, you know, just, I'm just Russ, are, are wrong, right? And the kid's book is right. How do we know? Um, well, in the Reformation, the Reformation rediscovered something important for us. It's called the analogy of faith or scripture interprets scripture. So how do you, when you find a hard test, what is this bow about? How do you know? Where do you go? Where else in Scripture does it talk about the bow? Yes, it talks about the warrior bow, but particularly where else in Scripture is a rainbow talked about? And there's three places. One, you don't have to look this up, you can write it down. Ezekiel 128. Let me read them. Ezekiel 128. Like the appearance of the bow that is in the cloud on the day of rain, so was the appearance of the brightness all around. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell on my face and heard the voice of one speaking. Revelation 4 verse 3. And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carmelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Revelation 10 verse 1. Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head, and his face was like the sun, and his legs like pillar of fire. What's the point? The rainbow, I don't think, is necessarily a warrior's bow. It's a representation of the glory of God. It's a crown. It's described in those texts as a crown around his head. And from what Scripture says, what is the glory of God in Christ? It's his death on the cross. So yes, we could get there in the same way, sort of, but I'm just hesitant to say what the text doesn't say, particularly if Scripture interpreting Scripture. What does the Scripture say about a rainbow? It's about the glory of God. A rainbow displays the glory of God. And here in his covenant of preservation, his glory in preserving creatures that are still as sinful as they were before the flood. God's patience with people, his preservation of people, that he allows sinners, nearly 8 billion of us right now, to still conduct our lives the way we're conducting them without coming down with another flood, is gloriously patient. His glory, he, gives, he gets glory for that. And what are we meant to do when we see the bow? Remember how gloriously patient he is. Remember how he preserves us, even as we sin. And how do we remember? We can remember. Why? Because it says in that text, notice, who is the sign for? Did you notice? It's not just for humans and animals. It's also for God. 
It says, when I see it, when God sees the bow, he will remember his covenant. I mean, you can do this on Google Maps. Um, there's a website, I think it's Google Maps. You can see the world, all right, and you can, you can see it, and, and they're taking pictures from space of storms and whatnot. You can see, all, like, apparently in the world, and I'm not on the counting, there's just rainbows all the time, everywhere. Somewhere in the world, there's a rainbow. And you can see pictures of just rainbows, right? And, and apparently when you see them from space, uh, you know, they're circular or something. And, but you can see rainbows. Whenever God sees the bow, he remembers. He remembers his covenant of preservation. He remembers that he will take on the consequences of sin and judgment himself. This covenant sign is good news. But it is a covenant sign of preservation. And what we see next to this episode is, friends, we're going to need something more. Because we're still a society of sinners. Genesis 9, verse 18. The sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these people of the whole earth were dispersed. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank the wine and became drunk, and lay uncovered in his tent. Things are going so well after the new start. And then things went so badly for this family. Noah began to be a man of the soil because before his time, um, up until now, well, he's really been a man of boat building and he got into the live animal export for rescue job. Um, but now he's going back to farming farming the soil, farming takes off again in this newish creation, it's going well until he gets drunk and it all goes badly from there. After the flood and the newish creation, what are we seeing here, friends? Do you notice? We are seeing another fall. It's just like the first fall back in the garden. Do you notice? Look at the similarities. Noah gets drunk and is naked and now is ashamed. Our problem is our heart of sin. Even as the flood cleansed the earth, in a sense it did, Noah is still a sinner who now gets drunk and his family culture breaks down. Here's a side point which I think will be helpful for our lives today. A note here for families and churches of kids and youth leaders, but parents, you often feel discouraged, don't you? I know that you do, because I do. And in that sense, we are all in the same boat. You can't make your kids do things. You can't make your adult kids who grow up do things, let alone your kids who are nine and six and four. Yet you know that we have an opportunity to make disciples, don't you? That's why you're given a family. That's an opportunity to make disciples of the Lord Jesus. But you know also you can't make them Christians. But in all of this that you know and your discouragements and disappointments, here is my encouragement for you this morning that need encouragement. Family culture matters. The culture of your family matters. You can't make them Christians, but you can curate a culture where you speak about what really matters in your family, and that's Jesus. Because everything that happens in your family, the good and the bad, is all an opportunity for Jesus. Isn't Jesus, we sang in this song, in the darkness he has come. Darkness times in your family, hard times in your family, that's just a wonderful opportunity for Jesus. Your sin, as bad as it is, 
is an opportunity to talk about Jesus. Family culture matters. A culture of speaking about Jesus over meals, in prayers at bedtime, over play, through sibling rivalry, and by the way, with tears, we speak of Jesus. We need to speak of the grace of Jesus Christ because our families are always going to default to sin, suffering, and problems. And watch out for the temptation. We don't know if Noah was like this. Watch out for the temptation of doing great things in public. Hey, I saved the world in an ark, you know. Well, it was God, but it was me. And great things in public, but in private, your life unravels and your family culture unravels because you're not showing people Jesus. Here's a temptation at this point. There's a temptation to become hypocrites, right? The temptation is to become self-righteous hypocrites. And what we do is we raise our children to be Pharisees. And how do we do that? Because they see mum and dad, when they go out in public, perhaps it's to church, perhaps it's to work, perhaps it's to their social friend circles. But they see mum and dad acting in a way that is like, we're sorted out and we're righteous and you know we've got it all together. But at home, their kids see the real mum and dad. And at home, their kids say, Mum and Dad, Dad doesn't ever really talk about Jesus at home. And, and Dad doesn't pray with us. And doesn't say, you know what? Daddy needs Jesus too. Don't give up. I know it's hard. I know it's hard. But don't give up. Remember, you'll never be perfect at it, but that's the point. Show your kids how imperfect you are by showing them how perfect Jesus is. Show them that you need Jesus, you need grace, you need forgiveness, and you need to grow more like Jesus too. That's the culture our families need. To rely on Him, to believe in Him, and be more like Him. And this is where family culture matters in this episode. Because this is the inclination of the human heart. Just because you're a family, just because we're a family of three kids that go to church and have all our life seemingly sorted out on the outside does not make us better. A family culture matters that we have a culture of Christ, that we are actually looking to God. And look at where it breaks down here because the problem is in our families, in my family, is still a sin. Because wherever I go, that sin goes. And we need saving from that. We need a saviour. Because look what goes on the ark. Elephants, kangaroos, bears, galahs, humans and sin. Noah gets drunk. Look at Noah. He gets drunk and naked and is naked and is ashamed. Noah fails like his fathers before him. And also, by the way, he fails in a garden. And so we see another Adam who is naked and ashamed, just like the first Adam. And then we see Noah's sin affects his son's sin. Family culture. Noah's getting naked. He's drunk. He's, he's, he's kind of life's unraveling, and and that's what's happening. But there's a culture there. As as Ham walks in, you notice what he does. Along comes Ham, and he. He does something, now some scholars say he does something perverted to his father, I just don't, that's not in the text, that's not what we see, and it's not where we see in the rest of the Bible it talked about like that. He doesn't do something to his dad, instead he says something about his dad. He says something perverted, and we see there that as we, as we read that text, this is what Ham does, verse 22, and Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. So he doesn't cover his dad, he doesn't care for his dad. He instead, hey, got a fun joke to tell you. Someone else's expense. Look what dad's doing. We were reading this passage with our children this week for our family worship. And this is a really helpful opportunity to, again, teach your children about things like safety and care. And so we asked them, we said, we read this passage, what do you think is going on? And they said, nine and six and four, they said, 
Ham has broken the underpants rule. There's a book called The Underpants Rule where you're not allowed to break the underpants rule. You, you, you know, that's, that's, that's for you and mum and dad and the doctor. And they straight away said, Ham has broken the underpants rule. It's helpful to still teach our children through all the scriptures the things that God is teaching us. So they can understand what God is teaching them. Because that's what Ham does, doesn't he? Ham goes in and he hams it up. He humiliates his father. And he wanted to get his brothers to join in on the shame game. That's what people do, don't we? We we want people to join in on the shame game. We're going to shame people. But what do the brothers do? Look what they do. Verse 21. Sorry, not verse 21. Uh, Verse 23. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it on their shoulders and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward and they did not see their father's nakedness. How do we react when it comes to shaming others? Sometimes it can feel like a game. But look what, Ham, look what Shem and Japheth do. 1 Peter 4.8 Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. They cover their father with love. They know he's, he's, he's in a mess, but instead of shaming him, they go and cover him in his sin. We live in a world that loves to shame people. And yet we forget that before God, we're already naked and ashamed by our sin. We even try like Ham, don't we? We go, well, here's our nakedness and here's our shame. Let's just celebrate it. Let's make a big parade and celebrate it and make it the big thing that we're going to ham up together. We try and celebrate it. Why do we celebrate so much? And by the way, when we celebrate that kind of thing in our society, the kind of the, the, the sexual nakedness and the shame we celebrate, have you noticed it's not just a celebration, it's shouting. It's screaming. It's almost deafening. Why? Because we can't bear to hear what our consciences are quietly telling us. There's something wrong here. Our society acts like ham. Habakkuk 2.15 Woe to him who makes his neighbours drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. Woe to you. Noah walked with God, yes, but here he stumbles in sin. And we need to watch out for this too. Noah sobers up and responds to his sons. He says in verse 25, Curse be Canaan. A servant of servants shall be he be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord God of Shem. Let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japhet and let him dwell in the tents of Shem. Let Canaan be his servant. It is noteworthy because of Ham's actions, it's noteworthy it's his fourth son that is actually now cursed. That's interesting, isn't it? If you look in Genesis 10, Canaan is Ham's fourth son. Right? Have a look there if you want to. The sons of Ham are Cush, Egypt, Put and Canaan. Why is, why is Ham's fourth son implicated in this why is it not ham what's going what's going on here well here noah is giving prophecy and the prophetic implication is it's canaan who one day will rule the promised land that one day shem's descendants will go into and retake for god's possession for god's promised people this prophetic implication is canaan is going to be an evil nation Perhaps the fourth son of Ham already showed this, already was showing in his, in his kind of family culture the ways in which he was perhaps relating to his dad or perhaps he was already showing the sins of the father. The family culture was so ingrained that, that, that Canaan was just living like Ham was. But whatever's happening, we do know it's prophecy because that's what's going to happen for Canaan. What about Shem? 
Well, Shem, he becomes the father of, eventually we see the promise given to Abraham. That's his line. But what about Japheth? Japheth, we see, is the father of many nations. In fact, we see Japheth is the father of the Gentiles. Us. And here we see in this prophecy, Noah speaks of Japheth, the father of Gentiles, who one day come into the covenant tent of Shem. Isn't biblical theology beautiful? One day, Japheth's line will come into the line of Shem and Israel and the Gentiles we so grafted together as God's people. More of that to come in the Genesis series. But for now, do we see the good news today? The bad news is a newish start for you, a newish creation, won't ever be enough. Just saying that on the calendar, the 1st of January, or perhaps from now on, or I've made some uh, kind of some um, promises to myself, perhaps some resolutions, those things won't do. What we need is not a newish creation, we need a brand new creation, a totally new start. And Genesis 9 shows us how we need that. We need sin dealing with. We see that in Genesis 9, God says a reckoning is to be accounted for life. And because sin takes life, sin needs dealing with. Because sin leads to death, sin is the stinger that leads to death. We need sin dealing with. And God won't judge the world in a flood anymore, but he will judge the world by death. Death and judgment. And there was a day in human history where the judgment of God did come, but it didn't come in a H2O watery flood. It came with a flood of wrath of God fell with full force upon Christ on the cross. And on that day of the cross, there were clouds gathered, but there was no bow. There were clouds gathered, but there was no bow. Instead, the sky went black and the judge got judged. And our cross-reference reading today, we read in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21, that through Christ, for our sake, he made him who knew no sin to be sin. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The bow was a sign of preserving grace, but the cross is a covenant sign of saving grace. And the believer in Jesus, who believes in him, is now a new creation. 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. But you say, I still sin. Yes, you do. But your sin is dealt with at the cross. You don't believe it, do you? It struggles with it. I know. Look, those of us that struggle with family culture struggle with their own sin. That's why we struggle with family culture, because of sin. See, when you know the wrong in your life, when you remember your sin, do you think Noah remembered his drunkenness? That moment was pretty pivotal for him and his family. Do you reckon for the next 300 and so years he lived that he thought about that day? When you know the wrong in your life, when you remember your sin, when trials come, when temptation overcomes you, when you feel your shame, look to Christ. The shame of your sin has been covered by the cross of Christ. Do you believe this? Just like Shem and Japheth covered the shame of their father, Christ has covered our shame. Some of us struggle with assurance of salvation. I want you to think about this. If you struggle with your assurance of salvation, there's a whole bunch of people understand this. Think about this. Think about Noah and his family, right? Imagine you're in their sandals, Noah and his family. Think about what they went through. How much would Noah and his family have struggled every time it rained? The trauma they went through, salvation through judgment, 
Imagine their struggle every time it rained. What do they need to see, friends? They need to see the bow. Stop looking at yourself, Noah. You can't build another boat. Look to the bow. You're a sinner. Look to the bow. What is our sign we look towards? Look to Christ and his cross. Christ and him crucified. When God looks at the bow, he remembers his covenant. When he looks to Christ, he remembers that he has cleansed you from sin, that you're a new creation. He has saved you and you are safe in him. Look to Christ because that's where God is looking. How can you be assured of a new start? You can trust in the God who remembers his own promises. You can't trust yourself. Trust in him. So now, what is left for us to do as a church? As we pray and sing, I want you to think about this. Here's what's left for us to do. When kids see a rainbow, what do they do? Like if there was a rainbow out there now this morning, which is entirely possible. We've been through a bit of a La Nina at the moment. Could be another rainbow. There's a rainbow there, apparently. There's one right there. It's done from a, a, a light, if you're wondering online, what are we talking about? But what do kids do when they see a rainbow? With thrill and joy. Hey, come and see the rainbow. They want everyone to see it. What is left for us to do now? If you've seen the thrill and joy of Christ crucified for you, what do we do? Hey, bring others to come and see too. We've got a wonderful opportunity coming up at the carols. It's the easiest invite in the world. When you invite people, when you bring people along to that event or to church, what are you bringing them to? You're bringing them to the bow, to see Christ crucified for them too. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, how much more do we know the joy, the thrill of seeing our Saviour in the gospel? So whenever we see him in the scriptures, as we've seen him this morning, we see Jesus, whenever we see that sign of our salvation, we pray that with our joy we would bring others to see him too, that we would be assured of our own salvation, that we know that you remember, you save us in Jesus. And so we give you thanks and ask for you to continually comfort us in our sinful state by remembering Christ crucified for us. In this we pray, thanking you for the new creation community we have in this church and for Jesus our Saviour. In his name we pray. Amen.